Well, good morning, church family. I'm Jacob Yarbrough, and I serve here as one of the elders at Calvary Bible Church. And uh, for our scripture reading today, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 9, and reading to uh, chapter 12, or the end of the book, uh, verse 14. And uh, as usual, I'm using the, the NASB, or the New American Standard Version, 1995, and I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and the terrors on the road, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been, has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jacob. As I say in weeks past, I know what you guys are thinking, what in the world is going on with that passage? Um, there's a lot of culture and a lot of metaphors that we'll talk about here this morning. But good morning. Uh, it's good to be here with you all. Thank you for being here. I'm Byron Brash. I'm the pastor here at Calvary. But today we are in our 14th week of a 14-week series, walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are finishing it this week, believe it or not. Some of you didn't think the day would ever come that we would finish it, but we will today. It is finished. Um, not to tell us that what Jesus said, but it is done. And today we will finish this book. And today in our final passage, Kohelet 
The Hebrew word for the preacher that we see in verse 9, the main character in this book, Kohelet the preacher, has one more message for the people that read his book. And the preacher today acts as the ghost of Christmas future. He predicts your life with 100% certainty. He predicts your future in the passage today with absolute certainty. Let me just, let me just ask you the question, okay? You, 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 like I say every week, uh, I would encourage you to respond if you're brave enough, and if you don't, I will stare at you really awkwardly. Okay, so what, what are some for sure events that are going to happen to you in your near future, or in your future? What are, what's for sure going to happen? What's that? Yep. What else? Taxes. Okay. Death and taxes. That's right. That is true. All right. Uh, what else? What else? What are some for sure events that are going to happen to you? You're going to die. What else? Good. You go, grow old. You age. What else? Jesus is coming. Amen. He cannot come fast enough, right? Man, come Jesus, come. Save us from this crazy world. Um, what else do you see? What are some other certain things that are going to happen in the near future? You'll probably see the light of another day. You'll have what else? You'll have good things that happen to you and bad things that happen to you, that you will die, you will age. Well, recently I watched a Ken Burns four-part documentary series on a very famous boxer from the 1960s and 70s. And only now, as the boxer has passed away, can you really see his life for what it truly was. The documentary series started out by seeing, by showing this young man who had great promise and great potential. His life was full of vibrancy, boxing his way to the gold medal in the 1960 Olympics. But then this boxer began to make his choices, becoming known just as much for his poetry as for his boxing. He was a polarizing activist. He was a showman, and billions of people around the world watched his boxing matches. Some of them were called the Rumble in the Jungle and the Thriller in Manila. He struggled to live in the present as he thought about the future. This seemingly bulletproof man took the best from the likes of George Foreman and Joe Frazier, but Father Time caught up with him, and as you see him age, he begins in the documentary series looking back at his successes and failures, his mistakes and triumphs, and despite all of his great youth at one time, despite all of his great athleticism, his destiny was the same as us all. Perhaps due to his mistakes and longevity in the ring, he developed an illness that slowly deteriorated his body, finally passing away in 2016. And only now, as he has passed away, can you look back and see his life for what it was. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Muhammad Ali, the four-part documentary series that Ken Burns put together. Some people view him as a hero or a boxer, but I, when I was reading, when I was, when I'm reading, when I was watching that documentary series, and my wife probably fell asleep during all four episodes, and I saw him as a human being, because his life is a picture of all of our lives. This is your life with 100% certainty. You will start out with great youth and promise. Then, typically in your 20s, in your early, late teens, you make your choices. 
You choose whom to marry, what your degree is going to be, what your career is going to be. You choose in your 20s to live rightly or live hedonistically. And as you grow older, you struggle to live in today as you think about tomorrow. But then as you age, what do you inevitably do? You always look back in the years of your past life, looking at your successes and your failures and mistakes and triumphs. And then you age, either aided or hindered by your choices in earlier in life, and then you die. There is no one that escapes death. It is just a part of life. Your body returns to dust, leaving behind the legacy of those who knew you. This is your life with 100% certainty. You make your choices, you live with your choices, you grow old, and then you return to dust. That is just reality. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to think about that aspect of life. But death is a surefire symbol that sin exists in the world and that we worship a holy God. But how do we live best in this world? How do we live best in this reality that I will age, that I will grow old, and one day I will die, and those that knew me best will look back upon my life and determine the legacy that I left here on earth, and one day when I pass on, that I will either see my Savior or see something far bleaker called hell. Those are the choices that you make. What is the best way to live in lieu of the reality of life to come and eternal life that we pass on and see what is the best way to live in lieu of this reality ecclesiastes chapter 12 so if you have your text that's really what the last sermon of kohelet the preacher talks about today and then the author the second character in this book pipes in in verse 9 of chapter 12 and he kind of summarizes it all for us at the very end of the book but being the last week in this Series. I'm going to turn this TV off. I'm, I don't know why it's not connecting this morning, but just so you don't wonder what's going on. There you go. Um, just if you can, you know, as I, sorry, I'm going to unplug it. It has a it has a weird attitude. Okay. As I look back on this book, when I when I first started in this book, I really thought that this Ecclesiastes stuff was just a bunch of doom and gloom. That's just kind of his reputation. That if you had not been here for any length of time and you haven't heard me talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, if you were just kind of read it on your own, what's your automatic conclusion? Because the very first thing he says was what? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. We automatically take that verse and then assume the whole book is just about death and doom and gloom and pessimism and how terrible the world is and all the injustices and life under the sun and all this kind of stuff. But as you read it, as you study it, and as you look at the text, it cannot, that cannot be further from the truth. This book is not about pessimism. It's about realism. It's about how to live in a world that is darkened by sin. How can we have delight and joy in it? If you still don't believe me that my interpretation that this book is about delight and about truth under the sun, if you still feel like I'm wrong, it's cool, you can disagree with me, but I'm going to beat you in this one. Okay, notice chapter 12, verse 10. If you have your text, it's going to be part of our passage today, but it really gives the author's original intention. Man, it just pops off the page. 
What is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes? If you still think it's doom and gloom, then read verse 10. The Kohelet, the preacher, the main character in this book, the author is speaking here. The preacher sought to what? To find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. This book is not meant to be depressing. It's meant to do two things, right? It's meant to tell you the truth. That you will die. That is a doom and gloom, and that is not a fun thing to think about, but it's just simply a reality of life. That you will die, and then number two, the point that the preacher makes is to put together words of delight. That in lieu of the sin that darkens the world, how should we live? Right? Well, if you've been here for any length of time, then you know that there's five principles at the core of this book. What is it? Three of them are given by the preacher in chapters 1 through 12, verse 8. And two of them are given at the very end of the book. What are the first three principles that the preacher gives? That number one, that what? Life is short. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That your life, that word vanity means hevel. It, it shows how life is enigmatic. It is a paradox, how it appears full and vibrant. And then the next moment, it can disappear in a flash. We've all known people that just disappear with death. We've all seen those. That's just life. That life is short. Number two, that life is simply unfair. That there are just injustices in life under the sun that you don't deserve. That the righteous perish and the wicked prosper. But in lieu of those two realities, how should, how should we live? We should find delightful words. We should enjoy God's blessings that God has gifted you simple things in life under the sun for you to enjoy you do not have to be rich in order to find something to delight in what does he say in chapter 9 enjoy what you eat enjoy what you drink enjoy taking a shower in the morning please do so okay you know enjoy the wife for the husband of your youth those you have those you love your children your relationships what else does he say? Enjoy your toil under the sun. And then the author speaks at the very end of the book, and he gives two final principles for a life well lived under the sun. Number one is to fear God. Have a conscious reality that God is real, and that he is a God of justice and a God of grace and love, that he punishes wrong and sin, but he rewards righteousness. Fear God, and then number two, to keep his commandments and that's what we see is the five principles in this book. And what we see in our passage specifically today, if you look at your text, there are two characters that are speaking. Okay? You have chapter 11, verses 9 through chapter 12, verse 8. That is Kohelet. That is the preacher. That is the main character in this book. He is speaking one last sermon to you all. Okay. And the last one I'm going to give on Ecclesiastes. Okay. It's all recycle it in 10 years. Okay. Um, one day. And then chapter 12, 9 through 14 is the second character. It is the author of the book. So you have Kohelet's final sermon and the author's conclusion. Now notice in verse 9, if you have your text, who is he speaking to? Who is his last sermon directed towards? Verse 9 of chapter 11. Rejoice, young man. What is his audience? Who is his audience? It is a young man. In other words, it is young people. Okay, notice what he says in verse 9. He predicts your life. Verse 9, rejoice young men, young people, 
during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes. Notice the last part of verse 9. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. What is he saying? What does he tell young people to do? Number one, let your heart be pleasant, be happy, be joyful. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your mind. Okay? But what? Yet know that God will bring you to judgment. What is he really saying here? I feel like he's kind of being a little sarcastic. Anybody like sarcasm in the room? Okay? He's being a little sarcastic. He's saying to young people, okay, okay, go, 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 go. Follow, follow your heart. Do what you want to do. Okay? Just know that on the back end, you will reap what you sow. That is essentially what he is saying to you. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Follow your heart, but know there are consequences for foolish decisions. How many of you have ever known somebody that starts by following God in their late teens, early 20s, and then follows and then slowly fades away? And then they come back to church in their 40s or 50s and they have a testimony something like this. I came to Christ when I was 12 years old, and then when I turned 15 and 16, I ran towards the world as fast as I could, trying out every impulse of my heart. I train wrecked one marriage, and I had two kids. My son I don't talk to, and my daughter is distant. And then, and then, in my 40s and 50s, God got a hold of me, and now I'm just trying to live for him. Have you ever heard something like that, where you start off a righteous life, Maybe you even went to church. Maybe you were a leader in a, in, in a youth group somewhere. And you start off faithfully to the Lord, and then you follow the world, eventually deciding to live a hedonistic lifestyle. I've known so many young people. I, I would say that more Christians start, that I start off with young have fallen away than are actually still following the Lord. To all young people in this room, follow God. Following God is the life with the best amount of gain and the least amount of pain. If you're a Christian and you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you will suffer trials in the future. But if you stay faithful to the Lord, it will describe how you end up in this passage. I would encourage you to enjoy life, but know your consequences for your action. As a general rule of thumb, you reap what you sow. Young people in the room, if you live a life of hedonism, a life of sensuality, if you explore the devices of the world, you will pay. Anybody else relating to this? Anybody else in the room, like over the age of 40, and just like, oh, yeah, I made some mistakes in my life, and I shouldn't have done that. I should have just been righteous and obeying the Lord, and now I'm paying for it dearly. Can I just speak to all young? I'm just specifically talking to people in their 20s in the room. You, your 20s really dictate your 30s, 40s, and 50s. You either pay for the mistakes of your 20s for the next 30 years, or you reap the benefits of good decisions. I mean, think about it. If you're in your 20s and you rack up a lot of student loans, what are you going to be doing in your 30s, 40s, and 50s? You're going to be paying them off, okay? If you marry the wrong person in your 20s, guess what you're going to be doing? You're going to be paying for it in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. It is better to be righteous and to follow the Lord than to follow the ways of the world and make all the mistakes and then pay for it later on. You reap what you sow. Anybody else agree with that? As a general rule of thumb. 
you reap what you sow. Your 20s. These years, you will either suffer your 30s, 40s, and 50s because of the mistakes in your 20s, or you will reap the benefits. The life with the most gain and the least pain is one that follows the Lord. You reap what you sow. Notice, let's continue on in the text. Notice verse 10. He's talking to young people again. So then remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of your life are fleeting. What is he saying? That life is too short to be miserable. Life is too short to have grief and anger distort your heart and your love for the Lord and serving Him. So what does he tell you to do? Remove grief and anger. Can I just, and all the older saints in the room can relate to this, I'm sure, that grief and anger, those two in particular, have a way of wedging themselves in your heart and cementing them in your brain and in your emotions, causing your heart to turn to one of stone. Anybody else relate to that? That grief and anger have a way of wedging. That when you start off in life, you're very optimistic, you're idealistic, you're, you're, you're happy and you're joyful. And then as you experience pain in life, those wedges and the anger and the bitterness and the resentment slowly go down, destroying your passion and your love for the Lord. What does he say? Remove grief and anger. Anger, specifically bitterness, has a way of really causing the enemy a foothold. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 4? Yeah, I'm hearing it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. That if we embed anger and bitterness in our, in our hearts and our minds, guess what? We're giving the enemy a foothold in our life. Can I just speak to all ages in the room for just a second? This is totally off script. If you have anger and bitterness in your life, Probably what you do is you think about that one aspect all the time. Just remove it. What does he say? Remove it. What does it say in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2? Therefore, I beseech you, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you improve what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Remove grief and anger from your heart. But then notice what he says in chapter 12 verse 1 he continues to talk to young people here but he says in 9 and 10 he says okay follow your heart do what you want yeah yeah go into but just know that you're going to pay for it like i say to bren and my daughter olivia make good decisions okay because you will pay for the decisions you make okay that's what i say to my daughters who are six and four I'm training my and then, like my six-year-old said the other day why do you keep saying that to me i'm like well uh so anyways uh, but then notice what he says next. Verse 1. Remember. The word remember means to revere. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. What is he telling them to do? To fear God. But I would say to be righteous. Because you reap what you sow. Before the evil days come. What is he talking about there? And the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. 
What is the preacher's final sermon? It is this, to be righteous, knowing that you will face judgment and knowing evil days will come. In chapter 8, he tells us, Gohelet talks, he gives us counsel. This passage is in the counsel section. In chapter 8, he tells us to be respectful of authority. Chapter 9, he tells us to be wise. Chapter 10, he tells us to be right, be, be wise, be righteous. And then here he says this. Notice again in verse 1. Remember also your creator all the days of your youth before the evil days come. What is he talking about there? What verse 2 and through 5 are describing is the description of aging. How you age in life. Verse 2. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. What in the world is it talking about? As clouds dim the sun and the moon, so do as we age, our sight begins to dim. Our vitality begins to dim. As you get older, verse 3, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, that phrase right there means with age, your arms and hands grow weak. I'm noticing that I cannot pick up as heavy things as I used to be able to even nowadays. Notice the next phrase, and mighty men stoop. Meaning the legs grow bent and feeble. So he's describing to young people what is to come. He's telling them what aging, what happens in aging. Then notice the next, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. What does that mean? It mean, it refers to your teeth becoming fewer and fewer as you age. And those who look through windows grow dim. Your eyesight grows and begins to fail. Verse 4. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mills is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird. What is he talking about there? Well, if you look at the first part, he's talking about how your hearing begins to dim, but then the second part, what is, and the one will rise at the sound of the bird. As you grow older, what is the case on your mornings? Man, when I was uh, 16 years old, I could sleep in until like 2 in the afternoon, man. Anybody else relate to that? I remember in the summertime, by the end of summer, I would be getting up by the time my dad would get home from work, okay? That's when I knew I pushed it too far, okay? I became a nocturnal person. Um, But as you age, what inevitably happens? You get up earlier. Like, if I could sleep in until 8, I couldn't anyways because my eyes pop open at 6, That's what he's saying. That as you grow older, you hear the sound of birds in the morning. Verse 5. Furthermore, men are afraid of high place and of terrors on the road. He is, again, speaking to young people about what the future holds. About the process of aging. What could he be talking about? Verse 5. Furthermore, men are afraid of high places and of terrors on the road. He's referring to the fear as we age, the tendency of falling or being hurt. That when you feel young, you, when you're young, you feel invincible. But as you grow older, you are come into the realization of your own feebleness, your own mortality, and your thing to become easily harmed. Um, I knew a man one time that in his 20s, he just, he really wanted to be a fighter pilot. He really wanted to be a pilot in his 20s. But then in his, about 22 years old, his, his eyes went bad. So then he became an engineer, okay, like a lot of us in this room. And then in his 60s, he decided to relive his youth, and he wanted to take up pilot lessons again, lessons again. And he, one time, he took up a plane, 
and he went in for the landing. And then he had a crosswind across the runway. And so as he came to land, he tilted his wings like this into the wind. And, and then at the last possible second, the wind stopped and his plane began to turn right towards the lookout tower. And he's surprised he didn't die. Okay. He landed the plane. He got out of the plane. And he told me after that story, he says, you know, man, I, I could die doing this. In his 20s, he didn't think about dying. He didn't think about the frailness of life, but he thought about in his 60s and 70s. That's just a reality of life that as we grow older, the process of aging, our own mortality becomes more and more a reality. Notice verse 5b. What is this next phrase? It says, the almond tree blossoms. What is the color of an almond tree blossom? It is white. That as you grow older, you grow gray hair, Okay. I have a lot of it for my age. It's just the stress of life. Okay. And then notice that I, the grasshopper, this is some weird stuff. The grasshopper drags himself along. Meaning that as you age, your body begins to be bent over. You move slower. That as a grasshopper at one time jump, moves quickly, he, as he ages, he drags himself along the ground. And then notice this last part. The caperberry is ineffective. Now, what does that mean? The caperberry was an aphrodisiac, okay? One preacher said that the caperberry was the Viagra of Solomon's day, okay? So you can read what that verse means, okay? <laughs> Notice the last part. For man goes to eternal home while mourners go about in the street. This is the first mention of eternity in this book. For the first time, the preacher tells us about life above the sun. His, his whole text to this point has been talking about life down here in our 80 years that we have to live. How do we have a good life? And then for the first time, he talks about eternity. And what does he say? As mourners go about in the street, the people that you leave behind, the people that you love, will be the mourners that go about in the street. And guess what's going to happen? Generations come and generations go that the world will move on. The people that remembered you will them themselves be quickly gone. But then notice verse 6. This is, there are four metaphors in verse 6 that it all describe the same thing. Remember him before the cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the cistern is crushed. What, 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 what all, do all four metaphors have in common? They all relate to a well. You know, we don't get the, the well, the wells thing because what do we, how do we get water these days? We just literally turn on a faucet and it magically appears. Okay, that's the way we understand water. But in this day, a well was very, very important. And you had essentially four parts. If you notice here, it says, the cord to reach the water is broken, the golden bowl, the basin for the water is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel to reach the water is crushed itself. What is he talking about? Think about the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. What does Jesus relate eternal life to? He relates it to water. So what is Solomon talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 6? He's talking about life, physical life down here. That as you age and you grow old and you get gray hair and your legs don't work properly, whatever, okay, and things don't work properly and you age and you age and you age and then you come to realization that you pass away. That's what it's talking about here in verse 6. All these metaphors are all talking about the same thing. And then notice verse 7, what is the destiny of all men? Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who made it. 
And when you die, your body will return to the dust from which it came. Again, this is the first mention of eternal life, that there is life above the sun. And then notice verse 8, his conclusion is where he started. Vanity of vanity, hevel, hevel, says the preacher, all is vanity. Again, vanity here means the Hebrew word hevel, which means a vapor. How life seems full and it disappears the next. How life is a paradox. Can I just speak brass tacks to you all? Whether you want to think about this or not, it's just the reality of life that you will age and that one day you will pass away. And your body will remain here. Your body will return to the dust from which it came and your soul will depart. And you will either go to where? You will go to your eternal home in heaven or your eternal home in hell. A godly person has the least to regret and the most to gain. I cannot... Following God is difficult. And at times it can be painful. But as I have looked back at my life and looked at many of you, following God is the best life. And if you're a young person in this room... Do not be fooled by the devices of this world. Do not be fooled by the promises that it gives you of pleasure, of earthly fulfillment. That is a bunch of baloney. The only fulfillment you can have in your life is deemed by God. For who can have enjoyment without Him? If you of any age follow the Lord, because you will reap what you sow. Then notice in verse 9, the second character of this book now speaks, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the author is speaking about the preacher. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. This book is not meant to cause you despair. It's meant to cause you delight because if you really truly embrace life for what it truly is, that if you, will, if you know that you could die at any moment, then you will simply enjoy life more. That's kind of the premise of it all. Enjoy life. This, word, this book is one of wisdom. Notice verse 11. This is great. The words of wise men are like goads. This book is like a goad. Now, we don't know. What is a goad? I didn't even know what that word even meant earlier this week. What it means is a cattle prod. The word of God acts as a two-edged sword, able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit, but joint and marrow is able to judge the thoughts and the tensions of the heart. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you have ever read the Bible in a quiet time and gone like this? Ooh! It reproves you. It changes your life. That's a cattle prod. That is a goat. That's how the Word of God should act. If you can read the Bible all week long and it not act as a cattle prod in your back, okay, um, then you're not reading it. Or you're cherry picking. You're not reading the Scripture for as it is because the words of wise men act as goats. Notice the next part. And the master of these collections are like well-driven nails. They hold you together. 
Does the word of God acts as a cattle prod? It directs our steps. What does it say in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17? All scripture is God breathed out and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. One of the purposes of the word of God is to reprove us. But also, if we meditate on the scripture, if we adhere to wise sayings and the word of God, then what is it? What will it become? It will become a well-driven nail. It will hold us together. Let me just ask the older saints in the room. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever experienced something excruciating? Something just painful that you never thought you would? And then in your darkest valley, the word of God is the one light that you grab onto. That you have that one promise in the scripture that holds you together. That is what it's talking about. That a righteous person is one that the word of God acts like a well-driven nail. It keeps you together in your dark times. Notice the next phrase. And they are given by one shepherd. Notice the capital S in probably your translation. Who is the shepherd he's talking about? Is given to him by God. Verse 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned. He's talking to young people again. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. What is he saying? That don't just keep looking to the world for all of your answers. For the, wearing, for the devotion to books is wearing to the body. In other words, just prioritize your time. Don't worry about all of the books of the world. Worry about the book. The one that holds you together. The one that should bring you promise and delight that reminds you of truth in your darkest valleys. That acts as a cattle prod. It reproves you when you need it. I think some of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians is that we do not prioritize reading the scripture, reading our Bible. We prioritize YouTube. We prioritize work. We prioritize other things in this life. Instead of just reading the scripture, we devote ourselves to many different things But then notice verse 13. His point today is to be righteous, and being righteous boils down to two things. The conclusion when all this has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. How do you become righteous? You fear God and you keep his commandments. Verse 14, I know I'm running out of time, so I'm hurrying. Verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Why should you fear God and keep his commandments for showing explanation? For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden. What is he talking about hidden there? In other words, what? That if you sin, no matter if it's hidden in your mind or acted out in public, God will judge it. If you live a righteous life, God will judge it. If you live a life of hedonism, he will judge it and he will make all things new in the end. The message I see in chapter 12 is to be righteous, to make good decisions, godly decisions, to fear God and keep his commandments. And the only way you can keep God's commandments is by knowing the scripture. Before I close, I'm going to address three different groups of people. This passage in particular addresses young people about what is to come in their life. 
that there is inevitably aging that will come and death that awaits them in the future. But I want to talk to the older saints in this room. Number one, I want to say this. As long as your lungs have breath, God has something for you to do. Number two, share your life. If your life can be described in verses 1 through 5 with the almond blossoms and the grasshopper thing and the caperberry thing, all that kind of stuff, all right, if, you, if, if that can describe your life, then what should you be doing? You should be pulling these young people underneath your wing and helping them make good decisions because they will reap what they sow. You will pay, young people. You will pay for the mistakes and the decisions of your 20s for your 30s, 40s, and 50s, okay? So make good decisions. What you choose to do really does matter. It really does make a difference. If you make good decisions, generally good things happen. But if you make dumb decisions, guess what? It's going to come back to bite you. It's just the truth. To order saints, number one, realize that you have a purpose. Number two, Pull young people under your wing. And then number three, I want to talk to young people in the room. One of my life verses is that there is safety in a multitude of advisors. I would encourage the young people in this room not only to be righteous, to fear God and keep his commands, not only to read the scripture, but also to find an older person that you listen to. You pull that person on your board of advisors to help you, to help, they will help you make good decisions. And before I close, um, I just would like to speak one other group of people. It's the non-believers. If you do not know Jesus Christ, let me just say. Whether we want to think about it or not, the reason the book of Ecclesiastes has a bad reputation is because we don't like to think about what is to come, that we will die one day. And if you die from this earth, what will happen to the most important part of your being, your soul? Because clearly from the book of Ecclesiastes that your soul will pass on and will return back to God. And the question is, where will your soul end up for eternity? Will it end up with God or will it end up with hell? This is the truth. Because we are sinners, we cannot enter into the presence of a perfect, perfect and holy God without Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sin, that he paid for my soul's price, my sin in full, and that if I would believe in him, that I shall be saved. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, first off, just realize that you need him, that, you, that you're a sinner. Number two, trust and receive in him, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and Savior. And number three, follow him forever. I'm going to end with this. To all people in the room, how do you live best in a world that is darkened by sin? You live righteously. A righteous and godly life has the most to gain and the least amount of pain. It's just the truth. And if you want to live a righteous life, you've got to do two things. Number one, you have to have a fear of the Lord. You have to realize that he exists and that he is judge over the good things you do and the bad things you do. And number two, you have to keep his commandments. You have to get your nose in the book in order to even understand what his commandments are. Be righteous. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning.
been a busy day with many things going on, and um, Lord, it's just a final message to all ages that we should be righteous in our lives, that we should fear you and we should keep your commands. And Lord, I thank you for the diversity of ages we have in this room, and Lord, I pray that there would be cross-generational fellowship, that the older generation would help the younger generation make good decisions and to live a righteous life. And Lord, for those that are young, that cannot be described in chapter 12, 1 through 5, that you would help them make good decisions, righteous decisions, decisions that will cause them good and benefits in the future and not a detriment to their future. Lord, thank you for today. I thank you for your gospel. And we lift this up and uh, thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.